0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, a podcast all about the North American model of conservation and your chance to dive into conversations about trends, research, and outdoor activities. It's time to get wild with the 2021 Conservation Media Award-winning host, Jason Creighton.
1: You mentioned seeing 150 deer on opening day. I mean, if you're seeing 10 or 12 does for every buck, that's a bad sign. Um, In one way, it's fun. It's good to go hunting and see a lot of deer, but at the same time as that those herds are out of whack. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most deer density figures you see across the country, at least the Southeast is that, you know, people are averaging, biologists or DNR agencies are averaging anywhere from 20 to maybe 40 deer per square mile.
0: Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered Podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. I'm your host Jason Creighton and this is episode number 124, Talking Whitetails with Mark Haslam. Now who am I going to talk with this week? You guessed it, it's Mark Haslam. Mark has been managing habitat for whitetails in the southeast for years, and that's what we're going to be talking about. He's the host of the Southeast Whitetails podcast. He is also the 2019 Deer Manager of the Year Award winner for what was then QDMA, but is now the National Deer Association. He's also a new writer for the Meat Eater team. During our conversation, Mark's going to fill us in on his hunting hunting podcast. Why conservation work is so important and what he hopes to accomplish with his podcast. Everyone on the line today, as you heard in the intro, Mark Haslam. Mark, how are you doing today?
1: Jason, I'm doing great for Friday. Excited. We did a control burn on Wednesday and I'm going back to the farm this weekend to do some more habitat work. So I couldn't be more excited for this weekend.
0: When we're done recording, I'm going to have to talk to you a little bit about control burn stuff. That's uh, that's a very Southeastern thing. Uh, Not so much done in Pennsylvania, but something that we're interested in for our property. Uh, So I might have to talk to you uh, for some tips and tricks when it comes to that. uh, Once we're done talking, but uh, you know, I'm glad to finally actually like officially meet you through zoom as we're doing here because, um, you know, we've been, uh, you know, uh, noticing each other from afar on social media, that kind of thing had, you know, can tell we have uh, some common interests. So I'm glad to finally get this conversation rolling and I want to start it with, uh, you know, you're a hunter. Uh, How did you start hunting? How did you sort of get into that whole deal?
1: I started hunting, uh, at a very young age. Um, I grew up in a, in a, in a hunting family. So I was out in the fields. I can remember as early as being in kindergarten wearing a old school camo insulated jumpsuit and just you know, completely almost like the Michelin man, uh, bundled up. So I started, you know, I would think how a lot of traditional hunters start where you grow up in it. And, um, I stuck with it. Um, and, uh, you know, some people grow up and they stick with it and some don't. Um, my father for instance, uh, did not. So he, he started hunting out of college and he was introduced, um, into hunting by some friends when he was out of college, um, in the workforce. And so he had a, he had a different, um, uh, approach starting later in life. Um, but he, um, brought us out in the field early and, It's that's where I want to be. If I have any free time.
0: I I can tell by what I see uh, on social media, you know, with Southwest, Southwest whitetail, you're now starting a podcast. Like there, there's a, a love for whitetail deer. Um, And that has obviously been instilled in you obvious to me uh, sort of through hunting. Right. So a lot of the questions I get from non hunting friends Non hunters on social media, stuff like that is like, how can you love an animal and at the same time, hunt it, and you know hunt those animals and kill them? Yeah, you know, how do you answer that kind of question? How do you justify the being able to say I love these deer, but I'm still going to hunt?
1: The that is a loaded, loaded question for sure. But you're, it's uh, you're
0: welcome it, on that. <laughs>
1: But it's a phenomenal question that I don't think Jason gets asked enough, to be honest. Um, You know, a lot of people hunt for various reasons. Uh, For me personally, you know, they say that hunters go through different stages in life um, as far as what their goals and accomplishments are, but... I've actually had this conversation with several different people, not many, but I have, but I've had it. And some, not in some non hunters, I feel like have a hard time grasping what I'm about to say, but, um, I think as I've matured in life, um, I'm 38 now, but, um, but was maturing as a man, I can, I think I can say that I mature as a man, but, um, my outlook on any type of animal that you take the life um, has changed tremendously. Um, I think you know when you're a kid growing up, you're just looking at it as hunting. You know, you're just waiting for that big buck, and maybe don't you, maybe you don't understand all the ins and outs of it. But um, you know, as you uh, become an adult and you're providing a, a, a life and a and a and an income for your family, um, and you're wanting to know what you eat. Um, for me, that's a, that's, that's a big part of it. The meat industry, not, I want to, I will not go on a tangent about it has always just really bothered me. Just, I just, it's and I think there's a big, well, I think there's a big disconnection between people. Um, most people, the non hunters, where their food comes from specifically meat and, people like you and I, or any kind of hunters or fish, you know, or even anglers for that matter. Um, and so getting to your original question, uh, it's, it's difficult sometimes, um, to pull the trigger or, um, slowly push the release. I've been working on not punching the release, um, (laughs) on a deer, especially when it's for instance, um, a doe and maybe she has fawns. Um, you know, when we start hunting in South Carolina, uh, when it's open for for does, it's mid September, and by that time, most of the fawns have lost their spots, and they are probably not um, nursing anymore, and they can survive on their own. But sometimes, when it's a doe group, especially a smaller doe group, it may be difficult for me to want to pull the trigger on one, and it just sometimes it's um, because you are taking the life of, of a of a deer of an animal, um, and. Not that a white-tailed deer is any more special or better than a wild turkey or quail. It's a larger animal, and there's a lot more that, that goes into it, um, being taken an ethical shot. But um, it, 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 um, it can be, I mean, it's, it's a lot. And, if, and if, it do, if, if those thoughts don't cross your mind um, as a hunter, I think it should as far as taking the life of an animal.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm right there with you. you know, I try to justify it in a, in a way um, that you know, I feel like the fact that I hunt, the fact that I do take one or two or at most three uh, deer, you know, take their, those deer off the landscape, that actually gives me more love for the ones that are left. Uh, because, you know, the ones that aren't taken, because, you know, deer are going to eat, right? And if there are too many deer or more deer on the landscape, that's less food overall for all of them. Uh, So, you know, while this one or two animals, uh, you know, their life has ended, uh, you're making the, you're improving the quality of life for the rest of the animals that are there. So I I look at it from a, a conservation aspect more than just, you know, hey, uh, you know, I'm just out here to kill something. And, you know, I'm right there with you with the, you know, shooting a doe that has, you know, some fawns in tow. Uh, it, it can be tough, you know, and there's been times where I've decided I'm not going to take that shot uh, because, you know, like you said, it, it's maturing as, as an adult and as a hunter and deciding, um, you know, sometimes the best shot is the one that you don't take. And, uh, if it doesn't feel right to me, then I'm not going to take that shot. So, you know, it, it's just, it's a tough aspect to, to really wrestle with. And it's every time you go out, you know, you should be thinking about that. Um, you know, when, when you're going to take that shot, if you're going to take the shot, if it's right, all that good stuff. But I think part of it too, that love for deer, uh, it manifests in that, that habitat work, right? Uh, you're a landowner, like, like I am. And uh, we do a lot of that. We do a lot of habitat work. I know you and your family do a lot of habitat work on your property. Uh, you know, it's not w- when we call ourselves hunters, but a lot of people think we're going out, uh, you know, a couple days a year and shooting an animal and, and that's it. Uh, but there's really a lot more work that goes into it whenever you're taking in Uh, habitat work on your property. So my question to you in that regard of habitat work, what's your favorite type of habitat work? What do you just love to do on your property?
1: (laughs) How much time do I have? (laughs) The favorite type of habitat work, I would... I would probably have to say implementing my favorite management tool, which is prescribed fire. That, that by far is, I think my favorite habitat improvement. If you would ask me that question 12, 15 years ago, I probably would have said uh, planning a food plot, everything that goes into it, the soil sample, uh, disking at the time. Now we're doing no-till drills, and everything that goes into growing the best food plot you can. But um, we've, you know, grown a lot as landowners and land stewards and conservationists. So it's without question prescribed fire and the benefits that you can get from that. Uh, the runner-up answer would probably a chainsaw and and um just go into town and open up the forest and TSI timber sand improvement or forest sand improvement either one
0: yeah that's that's mine I I love opening up the canopy you know whether that's actually fell on a tree uh or you know uh, 12 years ago we had a company come in to do uh, a TSI and uh while I wasn't like actively participating in that, right, the whole process of figuring out exactly what you wanted to do and that kind of thing, or even just, you know, um, you know, sort of doing that hack and squirt method of, of leaving the tree stand, but killing it uh, so that you open up that, that floor canopy to some some sunlight Um, and then, you know, leave that tree there for sort of like a snag so that, uh, you know, woodpeckers and, and squirrels and other animals can use those trees. That's, that's my favorite. I love uh, walking around the woods in you know late February, early March, and just opening up that, that canopy so that the sunlight can reach floor and then being able to see that new growth come up uh, is always something that I enjoy and is definitely my favorite. Um, so let, I want to circle back to hunting real quick here. So with hunting, I'm in the Northeast, Mid-Atlantic. I'm in the Mid-Atlantic. You're in the Southeast. What's the difference, man? Uh, I feel like there's a ton of difference between hunting in Pennsylvania and hunting in South Carolina. Uh, What's it like to hunt down there?
1: Well, I have not been to Pennsylvania. So... I can't compare it exactly, but, um, well, I think I tell you one thing that is similar is that we, uh, South Carolina will be, um, there's a bill that's being put together to, um, open up Sunday hunting on public land. That was something y'all were fighting for a while, right? Uh, still are. We have still are. uh, Okay.
0: We now have three days that we're allowed to hunt on Sundays, um,
1: a month or a season season. Oh,
0: uh, yeah. So, okay. So look. (laughs) <laughs> to recap, I feel like I, I've talked about this a lot, and I'm going to keep talking about it because it's important. You should. Yeah. Um, so we have uh, the control of, of Sunday hunting. It's a, So it's a blue law that's 120 or 130 years old at this point. Uh, you're not allowed to hunt on Sundays. Um, interesting fact that I, I just found out was that it's actually illegal to uh, host a sporting event on Sundays in the state of Pennsylvania. So every home game for the Philadelphia Eagles or Pittsburgh Steelers uh, that is played on a Sunday technically is illegal. Uh, But of course, you know, (laughs) we look the other way when it's, you know, multi-million dollar, billion dollar uh, sports teams. But uh, so we had a bill passed in uh, 2019, I think it was for the, so for the first season was 2020 uh, we were allowed three Sundays to hunt. One of them had to be an archery season, One had to be during bear season, and then one had to be during uh, rifle deer season. And those first three Sundays, you could only hunt deer or bear, depending on which season it was in. Then last year, the Game Commission opened it up to whatever was in season at that time you could hunt on that Sunday. So the archery deer season uh, Sunday, which was the last Sunday of the season, you could hunt uh, pheasant grouse, squirrels, rabbits, deer. So it it opened it up uh, and made it a little bit better. There is uh, another bill being, that has been introduced to the state Senate uh, at the time of this recording um, that would, that is again asking for the full control to be placed under the game commission uh, so that they could make the determination. We have still have opposition from uh, hiking groups and from the Farmers Bureau um, because they're worried about trespassing. Uh, they're worried about uh, safety, um, which I have my thoughts on that, that I'm not gonna go into now because I don't wanna waste time talking with you on as the guest. Uh, so hopefully that can be passed this year and the Game Commission can get full control on what can be hunted on Sundays and what Sundays to hunt. Um, The interesting wrinkle to all of this is that for as long as I've been a hunter, you have been allowed to hunt on Sundays if you're hunting um, coyotes or crows. Mm. So why all of a sudden, you know, those are okay, but nothing else has been is it it just Pennsylvania is super slow to change anything. (laughs) Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. A
1: lot of, a lot of states can be, uh, South Carolina where I hunt can be on, on some various things. Um, but to get back to your original question, what is, what's it like to hunt in the Southeast? I would say without having really any experience hunting in the Northeast or really any, I've hunted a little bit, um, in the Midwest, but what you're going to see some major differences, um, outside of the Southeastern region, um, it's a longer growing season. So, you know, we're, of course, a lower latitude and our growing season, our green up starts usually around mid-March, Ooh. spring, spring break for a lot of schools, St. Patrick's Day. Um, that's typically, that's when traditionally turkey season start. They'll they certainly be pushed back a little bit for a good reason. Um, but, you know, green up starts mid-March. And, I mean, our first frost in a lot of the southeast will be the first week in November. Um, and even then, that's just the first frost. I mean, you know, of course, I'm talking about a large region, and it's a lot different if you're Georgia, South Carolina, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, as opposed to, like, Tennessee, Kentucky, North Carolina, they're a little bit further north. So they're going to be quite be. same weather. Arkansas went in there too, but um, we might have, for instance, in the fall we'll have cold fronts, but it'll be like a weekend where maybe it drops down to a swing from like the 30s to 50s. Um, But we might be wearing shorts in December, and so we'll continue to have a mix of cold weather and warm weather, and it might not really get cold Consistently until the end of December. So there's that. And, and with a longer growing season, um, there's a lot more, things can be a little more dense. Plants have long, a longer period of time to grow. Our sagebrush, for instance, broom sage, that will traditionally grow taller and thicker here in the Southeast and it will out in the Midwest, out in the West. Um, and the heat also plays a lot, a big factor in our, in our, um, In our deer herd. Um, I was recently talking with Dr. Marcus Lashley and he brought something up to me that have not fallen into this rabbit hole yet online as far as how the heat affects lactation. Um, And that's something I had not even thought about, but he said it is a real issue, especially in cows, but the heat has a big factor on a lot. Um, a lot of the Southeast is very humid and we will have temperatures in, uh, you know, around a hundred, you know, nineties, 100, um, deer densities is probably the bigger issue. Um, because, well, there's a lot of different factors. It's not just a longer growing season, but we have, I would think a more dense area of the country. Um, Longer growing season, swamps, um, a lot more dense uh, habitat. And with that, it carries and holds a lot of deer. Even though we might have more hunters per square mile than most of the country, uh, we have a lot, we, we hold a lot of deer. Uh, there's also a lot of pine farms in the Southeast. A lot of the soil, some of the highest and best use in the Southeast is tree farms, growing pine trees. Lob lolly is probably. The most preferred long leaf is starting to have a resurgence of coming back. But with that, when you clear cut a property, a section, when you make a clear cut, within anywhere from two to three years, whether you let it grow up back of just with volunteer growth or you replant a pine trees, within two or three years, it's going to be a nasty thicket for the next five to 10 years and it depends on the soil if it's sandy or soil upland it's gonna the thicket's gonna leave pretty pretty quickly if it's a low dark soil it's gonna be thick for it's gonna hold deer for 10 years and it's gonna be thick enough you know you wouldn't thin those pine trees until about 12 years 12 15 years until then it's very thick and holds a lot of deer and it's so thick, a lot of predators don't go into, you know, coyotes not going to go in that kind of thick and thickness. a whole lot of deer. It's great fawning recruitment um, habitat. It's good for turkeys. So all of that, it's it, we have high deer density numbers. Not it's not consistent for the entire southeast, but it's a lot of it. Um, pressure. I mean, I, again, going back to hunters per square mile, I, I, I think we're up there. I know Pennsylvania's up there, and some of those mm-hmm. um, states, Minnesota, Wisconsin, where we have a lot of a lot of uh, hunters in the landscape, and with that, um, it's just pressure, and uh, with with that comes challenges, um, challenges of of hunting, and uh, when you have pine farms, and maybe there's not a whole, whole whole lot of ag, you know, if you look at sometimes like the Midwest, and you look at an aerial map that you might see someone post, and you can sometimes you can look at an aerial map. And you can see the ag fields, you can see the funnels, you can see the pinch points. You can probably predict where they're going to bed because there's only so many areas. But a lot of the southeast, when people talk about buck beds or deer beds, they can bed anywhere. I mean, they they might, when I talk about bedding, it, it, it might be a young pond block that's five acres or 50 acres and deer bed in there. They're They're, they're all over the place throughout the season, especially during the rut when bucks are, up and up and chasing does and up and about, I routinely jump them on top of the road, I and mean, I'll be walking to go climb somewhere, and they're bedded right on top of the road, just in a patch of thick of thickness. They can bed anywhere and everywhere, and that just it it, it brings about challenges of hunting.
0: That, that um, actually is very similar to Pennsylvania, especially in the the northern half of the state. Um, you know, while it's while we have mostly hardwood forests, right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, there's, the areas are so big and there's very little ag. So, you know, I mean, I can find a buck bedded in one spot and then never see him in that spot ever again, you know, for the rest of that hunting season, just because there are so many different areas that they can go. Cause it's just nothing but big woods and mountains.
1: Yeah. It, it's, um, it a lot of the land features are, well, we don't have the same type of land features that you might see out in the Midwest, you know, big buck country. That's not always the I mean, once you get over into the northern part of the, some of the states, northern South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, of course, Tennessee, Kentucky, you will see a lot more diversified landscapes, hills, ridges, stuff like that. Um, but it, it can be it can be a challenge, you know, when when, when people for instance, if I get a um, some, a couple of nice bucks on camera in a given, you know, summer, going into going into early fall, yes, I'm trying to hunt them, but it's, it, it's I'm not hunting one particular buck. And you put yourself in the best position to see a buck, but, you know, it it, it you might see that one buck, or you might see some other bucks. It, it, there's no, it's... Unless you really fragmented, fragmented your land up, it would be very difficult, it is, in my opinion, it's difficult to really target and hunt a specific buck because there's so many deer in the landscape. And if you're trying to get tight in on one buck, you're going to educate, or there's going to be deer that uh, wind you um, that are coming from an, another direction. So uh, that, that I, I think gives a lot of back to high deer density numbers.
0: So you mentioned, uh, having a lot of hunters, how many deer can you legally shoot? You know, you individually down on South Carolina, because I know like in Pennsylvania here, um, you know, we get one buck tag Mm -hmm. for the year. Um, and then depending on the area, you know, you can get typically one, sometimes two, three. If it's around like Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, you, it's pretty much unlimited DOE tags. Um, what's the, the tag allocation like down in South Carolina?
1: So we we have been on a uh, private land, a DEER quota program where you submit your, your property, submit an application to the DNR and they give you tags based on uh, your county, and, you, and your land, essentially. Um, if you were just buying tags as an individual hunter, I believe in Georgia you can shoot two bucks, and I'm not sure how many does, there might not be a limit in South Carolina. I think initially you get two buck tags, and maybe, I believe you can buy all the doe tags you want, and I know you can buy additional buck tags. South Carolina has added, they added antler restrictions a couple of years ago. Georgia has done the same thing. Um, but it, I, for instance, we get, we get more dough. We've always gotten more dough tags for our property than we've ever shot. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, there's there's really no shortage of deer a lot in 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 Georgia, South
0: Carolina. How how has the antler restrict? First, what what are the re- antler restrictions in South Carolina, and then how has that been received by the hunting public down there?
1: It's been mixed. Um, you have to shoot one that has eight points or better as the first one, and then the second one could be in you know any any size buck okay so um has it changed anything i don't know um i think now there's really not much complaints but 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 when it first hit the street so to speak people on social media were just blasting the the dnr and you know people will talk about conservation and this and that but and they'll You know, say, well, they're buying a hunting license and they're a hunter and they're a conservationist. But, you know, if a tag or license fee goes up a dollar, people complain. I mean, I I remember reading complaints on social media that how are people going to feed their family? Because, you know, it used to be you could just, you could, there were always doe tags, but there weren't buck tags. Buck tags started in South Carolina maybe five years ago. So, um, you know, people, there's complaining about how they're going to feed their family and South Carolina was just trying to get a hold um, of the situation and try to monitor how many, I think a more accurate um, data as far as how many, how many deer were actually being taken.
0: Yeah, we, so Pennsylvania has, uh, has had antler restrictions since the early 2000s. I want to say it was 2002 or 2003. Um, for... The vast majority of the north northern part of the state, you have to have three points on one side for a legal buck. Uh, And then, um, you know, southwestern PA, southeastern PA, you have to have uh, three up. So three points not including the brow time. Uh, Gary Alt was our uh, director of the game commission then. Uh, He was lambasted for introducing that. Uh, in Pennsylvania, because it was very much a, uh, there, it was a very young deer buck harvest in Pennsylvania, you know, prior to that. Um, And he coupled that with a very large allocation of, of doe licenses um, at the same time. So, uh, you know, in hindsight, the doe allocation uh, that they had then was a little overdone right? People went a little too gung-ho. So we had some dips in deer numbers that in some areas still hasn't really come back to what people would expect. But, you know, of course, with every deer hunter, they never see enough deer. Uh, You know, I remember when I started hunting in 1998, I hunted the entire opening day of rifle season. And, uh, you know, granted some of the deer, I'm sure we counted multiple times because they came through multiple times. But, I can, I distinctly remember counting over 150 deer from my rifle stand. Wow. That is just from a conservation, from a forest stand perspective, that is an insane amount of deer. Um, things are a little bit better now. I will say that our, uh, our sort of the age of bucks taken obviously has, uh, you know, gotten older in our state. And then with that, the bucks have been bigger. We have a higher percentage of, of bigger bucks that are taken now, uh, or a higher percentage of bucks taken being bigger bucks. Not that there are any, not that there's a ton of Boone and Crockett or Pope and Youngs, but, you know, it's still, you know, larger bucks. It's much less of the the spikes in the little four points that are taken because really only juniors can take those. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, increasing costs of license and, and that kind of thing. Um, Hey, A lot of hunting, a lot of the game commission, uh, what they're allowed to do is tied to our state legislature. So in order for the game commission to increase license fees, the state legislature has to approve it. So what that means is it's been over 20 years since we've had Hmm. a license increase. That doesn't mean that it hasn't gotten more expensive to buy, you know, to hunt because the game commission can uh, institute permits, right? So they can we now have a pheasant permit um, that if you want to hunt pheasants, you have to buy a $27, I think it is permit to do that. And, and we hear a lot of that same stuff, right? Like how are people going to feed their families? It's getting so expensive, all that stuff. Um, I don't, I don't get it. I don't hear it because I literally buy every single tag permit and apply to all three elk seasons that we have in Pennsylvania. And I spend $170 for the year.
1: I I think you're spot on one. I don't think the general hunting um, population really understands where that money goes and what it's actually needed for. Um, What you mentioned a minute ago about the, uh, antlered buck population um, getting to an older age, or rather hunters taking statistically or taking better, um, taking older bucks has been a common theme that we've seen when NDA, National Deer Association has put out their, um, their uh, year-end review um, stats. And so we, we've seen that again this year, um, that the that, that people are taking um, older bucks but I, I feel like that at some point we're, we're not coming out of the big buck craze. I, I think we need knee deep in it, but I think we're approaching a time in some parts of the country where we're going to need to focus back on shooting does. Um, you know, that, that, that was the hard part. I mean, I, I wasn't old enough back then to understand what that was going, when that was going on. But when just a, go back in time a little bit when Joe Hamilton um brought the tried to he he it, it took a little bit to introduce the QDM the quality deer management model to originally the South Carolina um hunting club community and landowner community trying to tell these hunters that they needed to start shooting does and at the time most hunters were in that mentality of you don't shoot does you know you don't shoot hens they are the they're the breeders you you only shoot bucks and that was going back to of course you know uh the days when the meat market almost took out wiped out white-tailed deer and other species of you know ki- killing them overkilling to the point of almost extinction so and since then we have bounced back people have started to shoot does and have more bounce herd but you know, maybe the early 2000s where we are now, there's just this big buck race. And I see a lot of the landscape where people aren't shooting enough does every now and then, I'll talk to someone about their land and the property size and how many does are taking, And it's just like staggering. I mean, they might take the same, uh, you know, the, the same number of bucks and does. And that's not. And I mean, you know, like you said, he's you mentioned seeing 150 deer on opening day. I mean, if you're seeing 10 or 12 does for every bug, that's a bad sign. Um, and in one way, it's fun. It's good to go hunting and see a lot of deer, but at the same time as that th- those herds are out of whack. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most deer density figures you see across the country, at least the Southeast is that, you know, people are averaging biologists or DNR agencies are averaging anywhere from 20 to maybe 40 deer per square mile, as far as what the deer densities are. I don't know the studies. Um, I don't know how often they're doing those studies, but take, but for instance, our property on average, we've been shooting for the past number of years, anywhere from 30 to 40 deer per square mile and towards the end of the season, If depending on where you hunt if it's in a food plot you might not see many deer because they've been educated and they will come out when we're not there on the food plots but if you go out sit out in the woods and hunt in the woods um, you might see you'll see a couple different doe groups you might see eight or ten does even if so if the average They say that the carrying capacity is 20 to 40 deer, or that's average deer density, but we're harvesting 30 to 40 per square mile, and we've only been increasing the number of deer observational that we're seeing every year, what's going on. There's there's something, the density numbers are, at a whack might not be the right, phrase, but we're not I don't think we have a handle on how many deer we have, especially in some of these areas.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we're on our property. We're doing very similar. We have a lot of larger landowners around us that do not shoot nearly enough dough. And we get extra tags to be able to use just on our property. And we take, you know, as many dough as as we can and we feel as necessary what I have found over the last couple of years when we've been taking more dough off the property, it's almost like we've created a vacuum because now we've created a property that has a lower deer density than the surrounding area. So the deer around us, a lot of them start sort of merging and moving into our property. Um, So, you know, by uh, just us doing it ourselves, we're not going to impact the larger landscape of, of an overabundance of deer in the area. And we've been trying to get neighbors on board, but that's a, that's a slow and long process to try to change that mindset from, uh, you know, we're not seeing deer, so we're not going to shoot the doe to look how many deer you're seeing. That's unhealthy. You know, um, you know look at the deer browse. Uh, you know, if you could see a deer browse line, you got too many deer using your property. So we need to, to reduce those numbers. Uh, before, before we get a little too long winded here, this is all great stuff, but I want to, I want to talk about your new podcast. Uh, you know, you've, you've had the, the Southeast Whitetail, uh, website for a while, and now you're putting out this, this information in audio form. So the, the Southeast Whitetail podcast, what, what is your plan? What is your goal with the podcast?
1: I've got some goals in mind. The plan—I have—I don't, I don't have a plan yet. <laughs> I guess you could say I don't have an official plan. But um, my well, my plan right now is to expand on my website, which is an article-based website. Expand on that, and to have guests on to talk about more about conservation. My the. The the three focal points I have for Southeast Whitetail is conservation, habitat, and venison. And what I wanted to do is one, just really showcase what I'm doing in the Southeast. I mean, I've I've been doing this stuff for years. This is my passion. Some might call it an unhealthy obsession at times. Any type of uh, free time I I have, I'm up there doing work. And um, I just I wanted to you know, uh promote it. And I feel like a lot um of let's say, okay, on, on, on the hunting side, I feel like a lot doesn't get showcased in, in the south, southeast. Um this this region is not regarded as big buck country. It's not regarded if you're looking to travel somewhere out of state, not whitetails, you're probably not going to more than likely a state in in the south. You should, you know, not including texas in, in that in that conversation to texas is a completely different landscape as far as whitetails um but there is a tremendous uh incredibly healthy deer herd in the south and there's so many different ways and styles you can hunt down here you know florida those bucks are they're going in right in the summer Um, you've got Alabama, Mississippi that have later ruts that, that, you know, start after Christmas. You've got velvet season. You can hunt in, in some parts, um, in some different States. Um, I don't think it gets celebrated enough and outdoor life actually put out an article not that long ago, recently, um, talking about the conservation talk. Some of the recent conservation, discussions and topics that have been in the hunting space about really that because a lot of that has been focused out west and midwest but if you look at how many hunters there's more than double amount of hunters in the south or southeast and the northeast than there is out west um i just didn't feel like the southeast got enough love and then the habitat side um and the conservation side they are they they blend well together habitat improvement and conservation And I don't feel like it gets talked about enough. Now, of course there's plenty of outlets like yourself. You put out a phenomenal podcast. Um, what I'm referring to is the general hunting media. Um, people will hashtag conservation, but they're not, there's nothing really to it. They're just, you're consuming a story about killing a big buck, but that's it. I mean, how many times when have you seen anyone cover doe management? You know, taking does, harvesting does.
0: Uh, out, You'll see outside, it outside. I will say, outside of the Quality Whitetails magazine that you get with your uh, NDA membership, not very many people talk about doe harvest.
1: Right. The only times you see it is going to be after the rut, after they've had their rutcation and they fill that tag, and they're going to go out and fill the freezer a little bit more with a couple does you know, late season. And that's just, now I don't know those, do, those deer herd populations. So maybe they just taken a couple of does, but if you were to try to do that in the South, your butt to do ratio is going to be just tremendously, tremendously out of whack. Um, and so, I mean, you know, in, in, in coming up with, with your doe management is, you um, for, for me, it's just extremely important. I mean, I, I don't, that side just doesn't get talked about. So, um, and then, of course, the last focal point is venison. Venison gets a ton of attention, a ton of love. Um, I just want to cover it more. I, I love, we probably cook, we had venison last night. My, my, my wife and I, family, we probably cook venison three to, four, three to four meals a week, and then there's leftovers on top of that. I don't know the last, I mean, I haven't bought red meat in years, but I look at venison as a, I don't look at it. It is a renewable resource. And this kind of ties back into one of your first questions about taking a life. I just don't, everyone knows venison, but, I, you know, a lot of people know venison for maybe the, maybe the, maybe the best cut, perceived best cut, the up or tenderloin. Uh, that's great, but there's so many different things you can do, not to dive into recipes, but just the renewable resource is venison. Like what you talked about, touched on earlier, that it, these animals, it can be tough for maybe a non-hunter to listen to this, but they're on our landscape and they're the ultimate survivor. I mean, they've been from what we have found with fossils, at least close to 4 million years. They survive and thrive anywhere from the Florida Keys to desert, all the way up to Canada. And they live all around us. And for the most part, they do not live long lives. And they're a renewable red meat resource. And I think that should be celebrated. And I think there should be more talk and discussion about that, about that, you know, as far as a protein, you know, um, as opposed to the whole meat industry.
0: Yeah, I agree. 100%, 100%, you know, and you mentioned earlier, you know, the disconnect that a lot of people have with their food, you know, by, by actively hunting and, and uh, eating venison, you are part of that whole food process. You know where your food came from, which uh, is something that I find is super important. Uh, you said you didn't wanna do a deep dive into, into recipes, but I gotta ask, what is your favorite way to have venison?
1: How much time do we have, Jason, again? Um... <laughs> If you said, Mark, which I guess you're doing now, what is your favorite? My all-time favorite, it's pretty simple. Um, it, it, it's, 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 it's cutting a bone and chop um, out of the spine. So it's, it's basically, it's the back strap. It's bone and chop. And if you get a little bit further back, you're going to have a T-bone cut where you're going to have a part of the tenor loin the part of the, the back strap, bone in, um, and, uh, sear it either, either on a grill or cast iron ultra hot and rare in the middle. And if it's early season, especially a buck, you can have a good layer of fat on the outside of the silver skin that it just trim is tremendous. It, it is, it is, I, I you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different, um, presentation than just cooking a rather backstrap or tenderloin by itself the flavor the flavor that you get around the bone and the fat is um I, I think it's just insane and just just to keep it simple butter maybe some olive oil garlic salt and pepper that's it
0: yeah i'm, I'm right there with you with that flavor uh, around the bone that's my favorite is actually a nice wonderful slow cooked uh neck roast Uh, And preferably even better if you keep, you know, the bone in, uh, you know, just by cooking a neck roast down uh, in a low heat oven in a Dutch oven for, you know, six to eight hours uh, with some good flavor profiles in there that you you build, man, it just fall off the bone, super tender, just great, great flavor. Uh, I absolutely agree with that.
1: Some of the best venison, it, 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 it doesn't matter if you ground it up and you make tacos out of it or a pot roast, neck roast, Yeah, you know, cook some ribs, which I've done to me, it comes down to how you handle the meat. And I think a lot, that's how, where a lot of the stigma comes when people talk about gaminess um, it, it is, is in a timely manner skinning the deer not just simply in this in the south we we tip I don't know anybody that field dresses a deer um so for instance we don't we, we don't gut it field dress it load it up um in fact when I've had people that have that aren't from the south when they come hunting, hunting on our property I have to tell them please do not uh gut the deer out of the field but What my point is, is that, um, and also with our high humidity, even if we have a walk-in cooler, we can't let the deer hang really too long, but you skin the deer, you got it and you let it hang and get all that blood out, whether it's maybe in your refrigerator or it's hanging in a meat cooler. That's I think is key to having good meat. It doesn't matter what you do with it. Um, And then just like what you said, celebrate the meat. You you don't need a whole lot of flavor. I cringe. Now, I used to do this when I was younger. I will admit this. I, I have flaws. I used to marinate tenderloins. I used to marinate backstraps. And you can do that, and it's fine, but that's the best way for that type of meat. I mean, even like the eye of round roast, I cook that like a tenderloin. And sometimes I'll even take like a top round and slice it real thin maybe, to where it's still a little bit frozen take a fillet knife and slice it super thin and just coat it with olive oil and some chipotle like some some ground chipotle type taco seasoning and then sear it pretty hot and make steak tacos out of it but just to just to consume the meat i think how it was intended rather than trying to alter the flavor of it
0: yeah i i'm I always tell people gaminess is one of two things. Either the meat was not handled properly in the field, uh, like you mentioned, or if it was handled properly, what people consider gaminess is flavor. Our, our American palates are so bland. We just love bland food. Um, you know, that, that, that gaminess that you're supposedly tasting on one of the deer that I shoot that I ensure I handle correctly, uh, that's just flavor. And that should be celebrated, as you said. Uh, last question for you, Mark. Uh, when you shoot a deer and you hang it, head up or head down?
1: There's only one way for this, right?
0: I have a feeling we're going to disagree on this one <laughs> way, but...
1: Um, it's always head down. Um, oh,
0: okay. Okay. So To answer... You I sure mean, agreeing.
1: in a further statement, um, I do not... Let me think about this just for a second. I don't think I have ever seen in person someone hang a deer head up or skin a deer head up.
0: I've seen one. I've seen one. Uh, A a guy from Michigan came to a a neighboring camp to hunt with them, and he hung his deer head up.
1: To to skin it?
0: To, yes.
1: So what's the... What's the advantage?
0: I don't know. That's just how um, he was taught. That was what he was told to do. And he got a thorough ribbing from everyone from Pennsylvania that, that was around. No one understood anything of what he was doing there.
1: Yeah. It, it, yeah, I've never. Sometimes I'll see people leave the hide on, even down here in the South, in a walking cooler. Um, in fact, Joe Hamilton does that and had a conversation with him about it. Um, the idea is that it helps age the meat better. Um, we don't do that in our walk-in cooler for a couple of reasons. We just try to keep that walk-in cooler as clean and sanitary as possible. And, in between maybe hunts or between weekend hunts, we'll go in there and clean it, disinfect it. Um, but the other, you know, main reason is my father is allergic to uh he 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 gets a little a little bit allergic to deer hair and so so we we just don't really want that hair in the, in the cooler but then also if you're going to do that I feel like you would want to hose off mm-hmm. and thoroughly clean the hide before you put in the walk-in cooler uh but absolutely head head down and, and I mean if it's a gut shot we are doing it very quickly I mean mm-hmm. it, it, it's yeah
0: all right, Mark. Hey, thanks for coming on. This was this was great talking. I'm really looking forward to the podcast and, and the episodes. Um, uh, as of this recording, you know, you have two out there, and um, uh, that I've listened to, and um, it, I've enjoyed it so far. So I'm excited to see the other guests that you get on, and and the topics that you talk about, and. Uh, I'll be honest. I may steal a topic or two after you <laughs> released a podcast. So don't take that for the compliment that it's intended, not as, uh, as a competition base there, but Absolutely. thanks for coming on and talking to me. I really appreciate it, man.
1: Thanks for having me, Jason. I appreciate it.
0: And once again, that will do it for another episode. Big thanks to Mark for coming on. And of course, thank you for listening. You know, it, I always find it super interesting to see And hear about how people around the country hunt, uh, their views on conservation. You know, we're such a large country that there's going to be regional differences in a lot of what we do. But yet, the one thing I always seem to find that's consistent is there are certain things that seem to be very much the same no matter where you learn to be part of the hunting and conservation community. There's still that passion more than anything else. And you can definitely tell that Mark has that. I want to encourage you to go and listen to the Southeast Podcast. There's a link to it right there in the show notes. Definitely give it a listen. It is really, really good. Mark is a wealth of knowledge. Uh, as I mentioned in the intro, he's also a new writer for the Meat Eater team, so make sure you're checking out uh, some of the work that that he's doing Uh, it's, you know, he's a great writer, he has a ton of knowledge, and he's just someone that you can learn from, and and while a lot of it might be, you know, related to hunting, there's still a lot of great conservation knowledge that he portrays through the writing and and through the podcast, so definitely something you need to check out. One last thing for you before we go, and that's, you know, I know things haven't been totally consistent here with the podcast as of late, uh, and that's just for because of some timing issues uh, going on with me. Uh, Things are going to be picking up here a little bit, so hopefully we can get back to that weekly aspect. But what you might have noticed when you went to listen to this podcast is it got released on a different day. Uh, That's by design. We're going to start releasing these episodes on Fridays as opposed to on Tuesdays just to get back to what was really successful for us uh, back in early 2021 uh, late 2020 and early 2021 when we were releasing the episodes on Fridays. Uh, it seemed like it was very successful then and a lot, gave a lot more people a lot uh, better chance to listen or it just seemed to fit their you know, the listeners, all of your listeners' lifestyles a little bit easier. So we're going to try to go back to that. So look for us every Friday morning. You'll see a new episode. Uh, like I said, we're we're going to try to get back into that weekly deal. Until next week, whenever we get another good guest on the podcast, I'm excited for next week. Make sure that you get outside, take someone with you, and stay wild. Before we keep going, a real quick question for you. Are you concerned with urban sprawl? Are you concerned with the threat of our increased human presence as put on wildlife and wild spaces? If so, an easy next step for you to try to help with this situation is to visit our Patreon page and become a monthly supporter. If you like this podcast, if you would like to help form a new nonprofit that helps combat and mitigate the effects of urbanization... Visit patreon.com slash conservethewild. That's patreo dot com slash conservethewild. Go visit today and become a sponsor.